0: If I were to hand you this Bible for the first time and ask you to give me your impressions and uh, you had not uh, ever read a Bible before, I'm sure that your observations would be uh, something like this. The first, time, first thing you would say is, uh, certainly is a big book, and uh, indeed it is. It's uh, 14 or 1,500 pages in length. Uh, about the size of the average uh, Russian novel, or uh, one of Tom Clancy's books. It's actually a very long book in uh, two fairly lengthy parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, those two testaments are further divided into 66 books of various types, some long, some short, some short as one page. Uh, there are various types of literature, poetry, and history and proverbial sayings and symbolic books and uh, informal letters. And in, in your first reading, perhaps that's about all you would uh, gain. But as you look further, you would probably have a second observation in that it's a, a very old book. And uh, again, it is a very old book, unless you've been reading Babylonian epics lately. You've probably never read, it, read anything quite this, uh, this old the oldest portions of the Old Testament date back uh, 35, 34, 3,500 years. Uh, another way of looking at it is to look at some of the people that we consider to be ancients, like Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote 350 years ago. Uh, Chaucer wrote uh, 500 years ago. Those of you that struggle through uh the Canterbury Tales know what I'm talking about. Uh, it starts out one not operio with the shore of so the drooped of march of persed to the rota and bothered every vein and swish decour. That's actually English. <coughs> <coughs> and uh, those of us uh, that had to work our way through uh, the Canterbury Tales in, in senior English in high school still remember those uh, words with fear and trembling. But Chaucer only wrote 500 years ago, and by contrast, we're talking about a book that's uh, extremely ancient. In fact, some of the sources of the Old Testament are, are older than the uh, than the pyramids. Uh, it's also a book about another culture. As you begin to read through the book, you discover that it mainly has to do with things that happened in the Middle East, in Egypt, and Jordan and Palestine and Iraq and Iran and uh, Turkey and places uh, far away from uh, Boise, Idaho, and you might wonder again, what uh, relevance could a book of that nature have for me? And that's really the question we have to ask. Why, why read this book anyway? The fact that it's a large book doesn't uh, really matter. Most of us uh, have plowed our way through books that are much more lengthy I read uh, Michener's Texas this summer. It took me all summer to read it, but I finally worked my way way through it, little by little. As a matter of fact, if you read four pages of the Bible every day, you'll read through it in a year, so it's not an impossible task. The fact that it's old shouldn't make any difference. It's an odd sort of logic that says only the new and the novel have any relevance for us uh, today. The fact that it's a book from another culture... Might uh, present some difficulties. Uh, Kipling said, "East is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall shall meet." And uh, of course, we westerners do have a hard time thinking like those in the east do. But nevertheless, this is the most thoroughly ransacked book in the history of literature. Scholars have worked their way through this book. They understand the culture, the language, the background, the history. In the translations that we have, the modern translations that we have, clarify most of the difficulties that we might have with this book. So the question comes back again. Why, why don't we read it? It's very important that we do so. As George MacDonald said, if you don't understand this book, your life is a failure. And that was the Apostle uh, Paul's point as well, as we shall see this uh, morning. I'll give you back your Bible, Don. Don't drop it on your toe. And I'm going to get out my slim version of the Bible. Uh, Turn with me to the second uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you recall the uh, setting of this uh, particular letter, Paul is writing to a church in the city of uh, Corinth. It was a church that was rent by division. People were forming cliques around uh, powerful, wise, powerful, influential people in the city, the Apostle Paul himself and Peter, whom Paul identifies here by his Aramaic name, Cephas, and Apollos, the brilliant young orator from Alexandria. And uh, they were trying to get next to these people, believing that uh, they had wisdom and power and those commodities would die with them, and if they just uh, stayed around them long enough, some of it would rub off on them. And what Paul tells us in the opening chapter of this book is that uh, wisdom and power only reside in, in God. Uh, he doesn't uh, break off pieces of wisdom and pieces of power and give it to people so that there, it becomes their possession. It, uh, it comes from God. And uh, the extent to which any of us rely upon the wisdom of, of God, then we have wisdom. The same is, is true of, uh, of influence. And what he's saying really is that everything is God's doing. If there's any truth in the world, it comes from God. All truth is God's truth. And uh, the truisms that uh, we believe and uh, people teach us really come ultimately from God. It's true in the physical world the medical advances that we've made, the, the technical achievements, all of those come from God. Uh, if you uh, look at the uh, uh, at some of the discoveries of the past that have changed our lives so much, most of them are in the form of insights. Uh, people were pursuing some other goal and, and they stumbled across some truth that has greatly benefited, benefited the human race or... Uh, uh, they, just a flash of understanding, and they came to see something that no one else had ever seen before. And what Paul is saying is that we have to give credit where credit is due, that those truths that so benefit our world in the realm of physical things ultimately come from God. It's true of every realm. Uh, I've mentioned before, years ago, I was um, uh, had the opportunity to speak at a chapel service for a football team in the San Francisco Bay Area, just before I went in to speak, the coach came up to me and he said, David, whatever you tell them, don't tell them that they can't do anything, because the speaker that had spoken the week before, apparently using John fifteen five, had told them they couldn't do anything. The last thing you want your football players to believe is that they can't do anything. And I assured him that that was not the case, that I wasn't going to do that, that, uh, as David put it, by my God, I have run through a troop. By my God, I have jumped over a wall. See, it's not that people can't do marvelous things with their bodies and their minds. They can, but the question is always uh, who gets the credit, see? We have to give credit where credit is due. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. And as you move more and more into the realm of the inner person, and you get into those disciplines that we describe as social sciences and the psychologies and the the sociologies and the anthropologies and we start looking at the human race, that's where we begin to run into mystery. We describe those sciences as inexact sciences, not because they the tools are not there, the tools that are employed in, in the scientific method are available to them as well. It's just that when you get into into the inner person, you run into 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 uh, mystery, there are things there you just can't understand. And finally, when you get to the realm of the spirit, that's where we're really in the dark. People grope about trying to find God. That's what Paul says in chapter one. With all of their wisdom, they never found God. So the point of all of this is we have to give credit where credit is due. Wisdom and power comes from God, doesn't reside in people. Now Paul brings forward uh, brings forward uh, an illustration. uh, from his own personal experience, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Reminds him of what he was like when he first uh, turned up in Corinth. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the mystery of God, for I determined, I chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. Now that's a description of his message. Paul could have quoted Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and other of the, the great thinkers of that age. He could have quoted the Greek poets, but uh, he chose not to. He just talked about Jesus and and Jesus crucified. That was his message. Just that simple message that God has done for us what no one has ever been able to do. He has freed us from the guilt of the past. He is giving us the strength to deal with our habits and the controlling elements in our lives and the sins that habitually uh, defeat us. We're being sanctified, as Paul puts it. Our lives are being fixed and set right. And, And on ahead, he says, is glory. We're going to share God's greatness. We don't have to fear. We don't have to dread death. It's been overcome. Those were the components of his message. It is by God's doing, he said, that you are... That he has made unto you righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's God who fixes things in our lives. And uh, furthermore, he said, my my presentation wasn't uh, particularly strong. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In my message, that is the content of the message. In my preaching, the the, uh, delivery of the message. We're not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of of God. The uh, uh, teachers of rhetoric in Paul's day taught uh, orators to uh, to build an argument in a certain way. They presented one premise, and then they built another on that, and, and finally you were driven inexorably to a certain conclusion. They persuaded you through the use of, of of argumentation, and they worked on, uh, on diction and and uh, enunciation. Remember the story of Demosthenes, who used to stuff pebbles in his mouth and and practice his speeches with a mouthful of rocks, so he would learn how to how to uh, uh, correct his pronunci- uh, his pronunciation and, and and work on his uh, clarity. Paul said, "I didn't resort to any of those things. In fact, I didn't particularly look good. I looked sort of rumpled and." and uh, didn't come across with a, a lot of power and a lot of strength i was with you in in weakness and in fear and in trembling but the content of my message was uh, obviously powerful and what i had to say imparted wisdom he said you know that's true because it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power this word demonstration is a very interesting word it only occurs here in the new testament it doesn't occur any place else in the rest of the bible and it's a word that was used by the rhetoricians of that day of the final conclusive point that you make as a result of all of your arguments. You present one argument after another until a, a person is driven to that inexorable conclusion that the thing is true. And and Paul says, that's really not the way I operated. I just uh, taught you the scriptures and I taught you about our Lord Jesus and what he came to do. And I taught you to transfer your dependence from from uh, human beings to the, to the Lord himself and and it had power; it had impact. The words begin to, to change your life. Uh, that was what the Pharisees said about about Jesus. When he spoke, they said he he doesn't have authority like the like the scribes. He has a, a different kind of authority. The scribes were always quoting. Uh, someone else, when Jesus came, he just uh, taught the words that the Father gave him, and it landed with such impact upon others. See, that's what truth does. We, when we hear truth, we, we recognize it as, as truth. It sets up a, a sympathetic vibration in our, in our hearts. And we resonate with it. We, we may not accept it fully. We may not uh, embrace it, but we know it's true, you see. Uh, we recognize it as truth when it's spoken, and Paul says that's uh, that was the hallmark of my preaching. I didn't look particularly strong or impressive. I didn't try to persuade you with rhetorical devices. I just gave you the words of God, and they resonated in your heart. You knew that they were true. They came in the proof that the Spirit and uh, the proof that the, that the Spirit uh, provides. So that. Your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, from this point on, Paul begins to elaborate on this uh, notion of uh, wisdom and power and, and how we get on the inside, how we ourselves come to know that wisdom and by utilizing that wisdom have the influence upon others that uh, Paul had. And that's the hunger that we all have. We all want to know. We want to be in the know. We want to understand life and how to cope with life and how to deal with the stresses and problems of, 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 of our world. And we want to have influence upon others. We don't want to make our way through through life and, and, and waste our lives without ever touching deeply uh, other, other people. Well, uh, Paul is going to tell us how we can have that that kind of uh, that sort of influence. This is what philosophers describe as a theory of knowledge. How we know what we know. Uh, Someone comes to you and and they have a set of beliefs, and uh, as you talk to them for a while, one of the questions you might want to raise is, how do you know that that's true? How can you be sure that what you know is is factual? Well, this is what Paul is doing. He is giving us a theory of knowledge, how we know what we know. Now let's begin reading with verse uh, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are... Now, my translation says passing away. If you have a new international version, it says something like coming to nothing or coming to naught. The idea is that um, the wisdom and power that people have apart from God just doesn't work. That's all. It just makes things worse. It may sound good. And large numbers of people may embrace it, but it just doesn't make our lives better in the long run. We find ourselves worse off than ever before. Now that's Paul's first observation about the wisdom and, and power that's, that's out there in our, in our culture that exists apart from God. It just doesn't work. But uh, Paul says, we have a wisdom. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now, when we think of mystery, we think of something uh, spooky. But uh, Paul is, is really playing on a concept that was, that was well-known in, in his world. In those days, there were sects and religious groups that were known as uh, mystery religions. They were very much like the secret societies of our day. Uh, the red men of the world and other groups like that. When you get on the inside, then you learn the secrets. There's a body of esoteric knowledge that only those that have been initiated into the society uh, can can know. There's a secret handshake, you know, and there's a secret sign, and and uh, there are secret passwords, and and uh, there are various other facts that you learn once that you once you get on the inside. Paul says, "We're on the inside. We've been initiated into." Into a, a secret society. It is a matter of fact, a, a society that's been secret for a long, long time. It's been hidden from the beginning of of, of the age. See, uh, long before time, long before history, uh, God had this in, almost insatiable desire to impart His wisdom to the race. He foresaw it. He, he walked in the garden with with Adam and Eve in, in the cool of the evening and he imparted this knowledge to them. He he wants us to know. It was kept secret for a long, long time but then God broke that silence and, and, and he began to speak to us and and those who are on the inside, you see, uh, can come to know the wisdom of, of God. He says in verse 8, this is a wisdom which none of the rulers of, of this age understands. The rulers of this age is Paul's way of referring to the Opinion makers and mind shapers and the theologians and philosophers of of his days. They they didn't understand. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See what he's saying? You see where the wisdom of, of this world leads people? It leads them into these cosmic blunders where they will even put to death the one who came to save them. That's how wise... He says we are in the world apart from the wisdom of God. And uh, here's the reason, he says, why they don't understand, verse 9, just as it is written. And here he brings together a a collection of Old Testament sayings. It's really a very rough paraphrase of a verse from Isaiah 64 and one from Isaiah 65 and and, uh, a composite statement that's drawn from some other passages in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, this, this is uh, given to explain why people don't, they, 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 they can't understand what, what God has in store for them. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the mind of man. My translation says heart, but uh, they understood those days heart in terms of mind. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, uh, when you talk about theories of knowledge, uh, most philosophers will say there are two ways that we get to know what we know. One is through the scientific method. You, know, you put something in a test tube and you hold it over a Bunsen burner and you sniff it and you look at it and, and you perform various experiments on it. Or you run something through an oscilloscope or you you, know, you use the tech, technical, uh, technolo- technology that we have in order to... Observe this thing carefully. Use your five senses in order to learn. And uh, we call that the scientific method or empiricism. Now, that's an adequate method for some things. It works to some extent. But uh, almost everyone agrees that it doesn't have universal adequacy. There's certain things you can't measure. How, How would you measure the love that you mothers have for your children? Do you have six inches of love? Do you have 50 pounds of love? You see, there's just no measurement. That, uh, that is adequate. So the, the scientific method is is only good up to a certain point. That's why Paul says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, these God has provided in another way. Uh, furthermore, he says, uh, the, the second way that uh, philosophers will tell us we know what we know is through our minds, just through the use of our, of our intellect. But again, our minds can only go so far. And Paul says there are certain things that we can't comprehend with our mind. Remember the Russian astronaut that went to the moon and, and uh, he came back and said he was on the backside of the moon and he looked all over for God and he wasn't there. So he, he concluded that God didn't exist. Well, any thinking person would say, well, uh, maybe he was, you know, if God is localized in time and space, maybe he was hiding behind Mars. You know, I mean? he, you know the, the, those those methods just don't work. The scientific method doesn't work when we're talking about spiritual things and, and knowing God and uh, reason is is limited. Well, how then do we know uh, the things of God? Look at the last line. All those things God has prepared for those who love him. Right? In other words, the knowledge of God and the deep things of God do not come through the scientific method. They don't come through reason they have to be revealed. They're not discovered. They must be disclosed. And what does it take in order to to learn these uh, these great truths from God? A great intellect or an enormous amount of training? No, just 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 a heart of love. If if you really love God, if you really love His truth, if you want to hear from them. Then he will pour all of these things into your heart that he has provided for you. See? Now, uh, Paul uh, is going to, me, he's going to expand on this somewhat. Let's, uh, let's read verses 10 through 16, where he uh, describes the process for us in, in some detail. This is how the things that God has in his mind that he wants us to know get into our lives. Verse 10. But to us, now, what he is referring to are the things which God has prepared for those who love him. To us, that is, we apostles. He's talking here about the apostolic community, himself, Peter, uh, others who wrote in the New Testament. Or to us, God revealed them, that is, the things of which he spoke back here in verse 9, the things that God has prepared for us, his wisdom and his power, For to us apostles God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. All right, now let's try to understand what Paul is saying. This is an extremely important passage. Paul says God has certain thoughts in in his mind. And they are very, very deep thoughts. They're profound thoughts. Now, what he's talking about are the, 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 the thoughts about how to live life and like it, how to, how to solve life's problems, how to make your way through life without cracking up on some rock or, or, or destroying someone else. See? Uh, he tells us, for example, that a, a soft answer turns away wrath. Now, who would have ever thought of that? You would think that strength is met with strength. And God says, no, that, that's, not, that's not the way you handle an angry person. You respond with, with, with gentleness, with a soft answer. Or who would think the way to solve a personality conflict is to uh, get the beam out of your own eye? You know, I spent the first 10 or 15 years of our marriage life trying to fix Carolyn. I thought, if I just fix her, then our marriage would be all right. We wouldn't have any problems and it uh, took me a long time still learning it to realize that uh, it's not my job to fix, Caroline. See, the Lord says, get, get the beam out of your own eye, David. Fix yourself. You're the only one about whom you can do very much. See? Now, these are those profound, those prof- the profundities that you find in the, in the heart and the mind of God. And from all eternity, he's just been dying to get that truth across to us. Well, How is he going to do it? Well, he uses a human analogy. Uh, how do you get the thoughts out of your mind to me? I, you, you're sitting out there thinking all sorts of things. Some of you are uh, probably thinking about what's burning in the oven at home or what you're going to do this afternoon with your time, what, what games you're going to watch. And you, our minds are, are working all the time. Carolyn and I often sit in our family room and read, and, and uh, Carolyn will say, I'll be staring off in the space, and she'll say to me, what, what are you thinking about? And usually I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just spaced out. But see, she doesn't. Or she'll say, A penny for your thoughts. You know, we, 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 we don't know what someone else is thinking unless that person tells us. Now, you see, that's the way it is with God. God has deep, profound thoughts, and he wants to get those across to us. Well, how does he do that? Paul tells us. The Spirit of God takes the thoughts of God, And he places them into the minds of the apostles. Verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now apparently in the spiritual realm, this is just a theory of mine, but but evidently in the spiritual realm people communicate thought to thought. That's the way God and the angels and, and spirit beings communicate. They don't need words. But God has humbled Himself. He has condescended to speak to us in words because that's the medium of communication here on, on Earth. So now, uh, if I can put it this way, God has a problem. How do we get the thoughts of God that are now in the minds of the apostles? See, they're thinking God's thoughts after Him. How do you get those thoughts in, 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 into our, uh, into a medium of exchange, in, into our way of communicating? Well, it has to be translated into words. So. Uh, the things that uh, that we speak, Paul says in verse thirteen, are not words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And the word "combining" also has the idea of translating or turning something into something else. What Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God takes the thoughts of God. And puts them into the minds of the apostles. And now they're thinking God's thoughts after him. And then the Spirit of God takes those thoughts and translates them into words. Which means that the very words that the Apostle Paul scratched on that piece of papyrus when he was writing the book of 1 Corinthians are the words of God. That's what we mean by verbal plenary inspiration. Plenary just means full the Bible is inspired. The very words are inspired from beginning to end. There, Paul made no mistakes when he, when he wrote that, that first letter, see, to the church at Corinth. Or the second, well, the second letter, the one we have, we have here. He made no mistakes. Theologians use another term. They say the scriptures are inerrant in their origins. They are without error, say. Now, that's a very important concept. That means that uh, we can read the Bible, and there are no no mistakes. It's true. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You think, well, uh, yeah, okay, I understand that. Maybe the autographs, the original manuscripts, were verbally plenary, uh, uh, plenarily inspired. But uh, what we have are translations of translations of translations of translations. 2,000 years of copying. And everybody knows how many errors uh, develop into a text when when you when you when you copy it. Well, uh, let me tell you why uh, we can have confidence in our translations today. There there is a discipline that's called textual criticism. It operates not only in the realm of Bible study, but also in uh, whenever scholars start to look at any uh, piece of literature from antiquity, they apply certain rules, and laws, and Canons of textual criticism to to try to determine what the original manuscript actually said. And let me give you an illustration of of how that works. Uh, my generation had to learn Latin in high school. We had, I had three years of Latin, I agonized my way through it. The last year we read Caesar's Gallic Wars. All Gaul is divided into three parts. I, I will never forget those opening lines. Now, Caesar uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars was written about 50 B.C., something like that, between 54 and 50 B.C. Uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars are about 900 A.D., so we have a gap of almost a 1,000 years between the original manuscript and the uh, manuscripts that we now have available to us, the extant manuscripts that you can put in a, in a museum, for example. So. And there are only eight of them. The same can be uh, said of various other writings uh, that go back into the past. Aristotle's writings, we have a few of those. Poetics, for example. He wrote that about 400 B.C. The earliest manuscript we have of Aristotle is about 1,000 A.D. So you have a gap of about 14, 1,500 years. We only have 10 of those. By contrast... We have 4,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some of which date within 30 years of the writing of the New Testament. Now, for example, we've got two complete manuscripts of the New Testament, one called Vaticanus because it's in the Vatican, and one called Sinaiticus because it was found in a, in a monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery in, in, in Sinai. Vaticanus has the whole New Testament. It dates from about 330 A.D. It was probably one of the copies that Constantine had made when he began to circulate the, the scriptures. You can see it. it, it you know, it's, it's under a glass case. You, you can see uh, Sinaiticus. It's in the London Museum. There it is, the a whole, a whole New Testament from, from the 4th century A.D., within 300 years of the writing. And more importantly, we have scraps of the New Testament that are, that are even older than that. A few years ago, they uh, dug up a mummy in Alexandria, and, and they were stripping off the mummy case to see what he, uh, what he looked like or she looked like, as the case may be. And, and they pulled off a piece of papyrus, and, they, and it had some Greek writing on it. And so they looked at it, and it was a section from John 20. And they were able to date that mummy precisely. That that person died at 127 A.D. They know that. So within 30 years of the writing of the Gospel of John, it had circulated as far as Alexandria and been discarded. Piece of papyrus had apparently ripped off, and they used it as a section of a you know a mummy case. And the point I'm making is that that the the evidence is extremely good. What we have right here is uh, really what Paul put on the page. Because what what scholars do is they bring all these manuscripts together and they compare them. And they compare the lectionaries, that is, the the uh, readings that, that were used in the early church, and the the writings of the church fathers in the first couple of centuries that quote scripture and. And, and, and if, if Eusebius says uh, that John 1, 1 starts out in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the early manuscripts say that and the lectionaries say that, we can say with a great deal of assurance, not absolute certainty, but, but with a great deal of assurance that what we have right here are the, the words that John wrote on the page or that Paul put down when he, he wrote to the, to the Corinthians. One, one scholar has said that if you were to gather all of the passages that we're uncomfortable with, collect them into one place, they would occupy less than one half of a page of a Greek New Testament. That's one one-thousandth of the New Testament. And not one of them has anything whatever to do with theology. They have to do with variant spellings, and grammar, and things like that. See? So what I, that's just a long-winded way of saying that what we hold in our hands right now is the word of God, we don't we don't have Paul's original writings, but what we have is an extremely accurate copy of, of what he actually said. You see, so now you, you understand what Paul is saying. God has thoughts, and these thoughts are taken out of his mind and they're implanted in the minds of the apostles, and they begin to think God's thoughts after him. And then God translates those thoughts into words, so that when the apostles preached and when they wrote, what they wrote was the word of God. Now, uh, we call the first uh, part of the process revelation. The second part we describe as inspiration. It's the same thing that Paul uh, describes later in the passage that Bill read. All Scripture is inspired of God. He coins a word. God breathed. The Spirit of God ransacked the vocabularies of the apostles in order to find just the right word to convey the idea that That he wanted to get across. He didn't bypass their personalities. Their personalities are reflected. But he chose just the right nuance. The right word in order to say exactly what he wanted to say. That's inspiration. And then finally the spirit of God takes that truth that we read. The truth that we find as mere words on the page. And he translates it into living reality in our lives. We call that illumination. Verse 14 unfortunately the natural man doesn't accept the things of the spirit of god they read the bible and 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 they don't buy it the natural man here is is paul's word for a non-christian someone that doesn't have the spirit if you're a christian you have the spirit of god in fact paul puts it another way he says if, if you don't have the spirit of god you're not a christian but if you've Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you were given the Spirit of God, and he resides deep down in your heart. He's your tutor. He's your teacher. He's the one that takes the words that you read on the page, and he turns them into into life. But unfortunately, the soulish man, the natural man, the man who is only mind, emotion, will, body, does not have contact with the things of of the Spirit. He he doesn't get it. They're foolishness to him doesn't have the receptors. You know, there are sights and sounds all over this auditorium that, that you and I are not, not aware of. But if you had a radio or a television set, you could, you could tune in. They're there. And so Paul is saying, truth is there, but it, it just bypasses them. They, it, it seems, actually, the word he uses for foolish is the word from which we get our word moron. It seems moronic. It's too facile, too, too, too easy an answer the problems that I, that I have to face. It's ridiculous. And therefore, Paul says, he can't understand them. And that doesn't mean that non-Christians can't understand the Bible. The, part of my seminary training was in a seminary where people did not have a high view of inspiration and where some of my teachers were not even believers. And very often, they, they were more accurate in their understanding of the argument of a passage than some of my evangelical friends. I've learned a lot from them. But they just didn't get it. That's all. They didn't see its implications for, for life. And uh, the word that Paul uses here for understanding is the word to know. They, they can't enter into it experiential, experientially. It doesn't really touch them at the deepest level. Because such things, he says, are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, that you folks out there that love God with all your heart and and uh, like the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, you love his law. You know, the only people in, in, in our world that love the law are lawyers. But here's a, here's a man who, who loved God's Word because it taught him how to deal with life, how to cope with, with the problems that, that he had to face. You know, if, if that's your heart, you have an open, responsive, receptive heart to God, and you love him, and you, and you love his truth then Paul says you're you're able to discern all things. Now, I don't take this to mean that you you can go take a math test tomorrow and pass it without even looking at the book. That's not the point, you see. The purpose of the Bible is not to teach you mathematics. A student came to Augustine one time and claimed that he'd found the the, uh, orbits of the planets in the Bible, and and before he got done, Augustine interrupted him. and said, look, he says, the purpose of the Bible is not to make astronomers out of us, it's to make Christians out of us. As Paul puts it, the, the truth in Scripture is able to make you wise into salvation. It's true that the truths of mathematics come from God. If they're true at all, they came from him. But you won't learn astronomy or mathematics or geology or biology from the Bible. You, it, where, it, where the two intersect, the Bible will be true. There are no mistakes. But that's not the purpose for studying the Bible. The purpose for, the study, for studying the Bible is to know God and grow in that knowledge and and to learn how to make those subtle tough moral decisions that uh, people out there struggle with is gay good see well well the bible says no no it's not that homosexuality will destroy you and that's why it's so wrong when we support and condone what what people are are, are struggling with out there you know they're trying to understand it and 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 we say well maybe we need to Maybe homosexuality is just the moral counterpart of being left-handed, you know. No, no, it's terribly destructive, Paul says. Is adultery a good way to spice up your marriage? No, no, it'll wreck your marriage. Is teenage sex okay? No, it's not. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in our society and the impact upon our young men and women to see that it's not good. Are drugs good? No, see, and, and, and some of the even tougher issues that, uh, that the world uh, just uh, they, they don't have any tools for dealing with, Paul says, we can, we can discern those things. We can say greed is not, is not good. We can say that bitterness and resentment will, will hurt you. It will destroy you. We can say that gossip is not good, you see, because we can, we can appraise moral issues. Now, that's not something that happens overnight. It's just—it's not a matter of uh, reading the Bible and suddenly discerning everything. It's a process of growth. And as you read your Bibles, as you expose your heart to the truth, and as you ask the Spirit of God to teach you, you gain in moral discernment day after day. And uh, uh, finally, Paul concludes with this uh, uh, audacious, amazing, audacious statement. He uh raises the question, actually a quotation from Isaiah 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? It's a good question. Who knows what God is thinking? Who can understand the thoughts that are in the mind of God? And Paul's answer is, we do. We do. We have the mind of Christ. Now, do you understand what he's saying? God has these wonderful, profound thoughts the Holy Spirit takes those thoughts, puts them in the minds of the apostles. Then the Holy Spirit translates those thoughts into words. And those words are written to us. We read the Bible and the Holy Spirit takes those words and he makes them a point, at part of our life so that we're able to think like God thinks, think like our Lord Jesus thinks, until we can say we have the mind of Christ. And we can take that out into the world, and we can begin to behave as Christ behaves uh, in the world. Now, uh, I want to go back to my original question: If this is true, why don't we read this book? For goodness' sake, why don't we read it? You know, this is the most uh, widely translated uh, book in the history of uh, of literature. Uh, It's still a bestseller. I dare say every one of you have at least one Bible in your house and most of us have two or three, you know, and every once in a while we get it out we blow the dust off of it and you know, we look at it to see what it has to say, you know, instead of just immersing ourselves in this in this book day after day after day and asking the Spirit of God to show us what we need to change about ourselves and and to give us the wisdom that we need to uh, to make our way through uh, through life. Uh, Successfully, I was uh, uh, down in the uh, the University of California (coughs) at Berkeley. uh, Library has several uh, levels of basement, and the study carrels are down there in in some of the bottom floors. And I was down there one day looking for a book, and I I saw a student sitting in a carrel, and he had his feet up on the on the desk. And he was reading a Superman comic book, and I laughed right out loud when I saw it because it struck me of the incongruity of sitting there surrounded by the wisdom of the ages, you know. Here he's reading light fantasy. You know, well, that's a parable on life, you know. Really, here, here we are surrounded by the wisdom of God. It's available to us. We can pick it up and know what God is thinking and think his thoughts after him. And we spend our time watching television, you know. We just spend untold hours front of that thing. And we read uh, romantic novels and, and uh, various other pieces of literature, which are, some are good, some are not so good. And, and we always find time to read. I'm a reader. I, I, I read everything that, that I can get my hands on. I read the back of the oatmeal box while we're eating breakfast. And, you know. But, but the question is, do, are we reading this book? Are we reading this book? Uh, let me read something John Wesley wrote, and then I'm, I'm through. He said, God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge for me. Let me be homo unius libri. That is a man of one book, a person of of one book. And that would be my prayer as well. Not that we only read one book. uh, It's good to be a reader. But let's read every book in the light of this one book. Let's pray.